Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and some of the most important events in my life occurred while working on the issue of education and school reform. I met my wife at a school reform conference in San Francisco in December of 1990. And I got my start in politics by running for and then serving on the San Francisco Board of Education in 1992. Education remains at the epicenter of social change for oppressed people in this country. It was illegal to teach enslaved people how to read. And we are seeing now with the book bannings in states such as Florida and Texas and the attacks on so-called critical race theory, the profound fear that the modern day Confederates have of an educated and a powered electorate. So I'm delighted that in today's podcast, we are joined by a strong social justice leader who came up through working in the public school system. He is one of the rising progressive members of Congress, and he hails from the great state of New York. For that conversation, I am not joined, unfortunately, by my traditional co-host, Charlene Chang, who is having technological and power grid issues up in Canada. But we are joined and ably filling in is our staff writer, Fola Onifade, who you've heard before and who will be joining me for this conversation with our esteemed congressman. So, hi, Fola. Are you uh, ready to step to the plate, and do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. Yes, thank you. Uh, excited to be a part of this conversation today with Representative Jamal Bowman. Um, so I'll just give a quick bio on Congressman Bowman. He is the congressman representing New York's 16th district. Rep Bowman was born and raised in New York City. So shout out to all the people who were born in New York. Not me, I'm from New Jersey, but my brother lives in Brooklyn, so I will claim it a little bit. He spent his early years in public housing and rent controlled apartments where he was raised by his mother who supported him and his siblings with her post office workers, Sally. Rep Bowman began his career as a crisis intervention teacher in a Bronx public school, and he went on to earn a master's degree in guidance counseling before earning his doctorate in education from Manhattanville College. In 2009, he founded Cornerstone Academy for Social Action, CASA, a Bronx middle school where he served as principal for a decade. Welcome, Representative Bowman. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure to be with you all. We're delighted you could, you could join us. Um, and as Fola mentioned in your bio, you started as a crisis intervention teacher at a public school. Um, as I was saying up top, you know, education is really how I got involved in a lot of the social change and political world as well. But in, in terms of your experience, can you describe for us what exactly does a crisis intervention teacher do? What does that mean? And then how did that bring you into the whole field of education? No, absolutely. So more broadly, I was an elementary school teacher. I think that's something that people can uh, wrap their heads around a bit uh, more easily in the South Bronx beginning in 1999. And what a crisis intervention teacher does is we simply uh, build great relationships with students, teachers, and parents to ensure that our kids are set up for success in the classroom as it relates to large class size, uh, early career teachers, and some challenges that come with curriculum and underinvestment. So it's to do everything in our power to make sure that restorative justice is front and center uh, in our school system, as opposed to many of the punitive measures that are implemented far too uh, consistently and widely in our public school system. So that's what a crisis intervention teacher does. Um, but I didn't just do that. I taught uh, math in elementary school and 
kindergarten through fourth grade. Uh, I taught fourth grade uh, for a number of years before going on to be a counselor and, and dean of a high school and then a middle school principal ultimately after that. Um, but that's what a crisis intervention teacher does. Okay. So you, like you said, you started uh, the Cornerstone Academy and you're the principal there. What led you to start your own school and what was that process even like? Yeah. So, you know, I had worked at PS90 in the South Bronx uh, for about five or six years. Then I uh, used my guidance counseling certification. My first uh, master's is in guidance counseling to work at the high school for arts and technology at the MLK campus for about three years. And while I was there, um, it was a really uh, challenging time. It was the early years of the implementation of uh, Michael Bloomberg's education policies, which were deeply rooted in over-policing our public schools. Um, so I was kind of living through that. At the same time, you know, MLK was right across the street from LaGuardia High School, where those kids who are quote unquote gifted and mostly white and Asian didn't have to go through metal detectors or any of that on their way to class like like my kids had to go through. So it was frustrating. It was infuriating and it was depressing serving under a guidance license, but really as a dean of students, implementing these punitive discipline policies without any conversation about, okay, um, what could we do around curriculum and instruction that could really unlock the brilliant potential of our kids while not suspending them all the time uh, because we're not implementing any restorative justice practices. So all of that led to me writing a proposal for a school um, that I would open somewhere in the city. Um, we, you know, submitted the proposal, argued for the school, and they allowed us to open a district public middle school, not charter school, in the Northeast Bronx. And, and honestly, it just started with me feeling angry and depressed and wanting to do more for the kids I served to journaling about that vision and what that would be like to actually writing a proposal and, and being granted the opportunity to open the school. So uh, that's kind of how it happened. So what was the, can you describe a little bit more the composition of the schools? You mentioned MLK and then LaGuardia, yeah. and then like, what was the makeup of those students? Yeah, so M MLK was designated an impact school, quote unquote, impact school by the Bloomberg administration, which meant that it was a school that was, that needed metal detectors because, you know, the, it had a disproportionate amount of incidents in the school with, you know, fights and what have you taking place. Uh, it was mostly black and Latino school. Uh, most of our kids came from Harlem or, or, or parts of, of Brooklyn or inner cities throughout the, the outer boroughs. And uh, yeah, that was pretty much the, comp the composition. It was, a, it was a classic traditional Title I school in an urban setting, um, which is where I had come from as well in the South Bronx. I also worked at a Title I school there, um, which was also Black and Latino, large immigrant population, et cetera. And part of my frustration was not just the the, the over-policing and the lack of imagination, but no one really talking about historic uh, disinvestment in not just Title I schools, but redlining of the communities that the, that the kids came from. And the despite those challenges, the, the passion and excitement for learning that our kids had and the immense creativity and innovation that they had as well. We had no curriculum aligned to that. And that was part of my frustration. That's why we opened a school to try to do it differently. So just for our, our listeners, I want to lift up a couple of things that were touched on that may not be 
evident, particularly if you're not in the education space as much. And so for one, this, you know, the Congress was talking about Title I schools. That's basically a federal law that was passed that moves federal money to schools for a lot or a lot of low-income students. And so you have that dynamic. And then the other, you know, I mentioned the you know, so-called gifted uh, program. That's something that I dealt with a lot in San Francisco. Is a lot of the society's fissures and divisions play themselves out in the school system. And so this whole thing about, quote, you know, in San Francisco, it was called gate, gifted and talented education. And it's like, even by virtue of saying that, what do you say about the other students, right? And so then that is a whole reality. And so I think that that was something I wanted to wanted to flag as well. And then just one other point, and then maybe you could speak to whether this is still even a dominant reality. Congressman mentioned in, in, in passing, not a charter school. And there's a whole movement within this country around really corporate liberalish people pushing charter schools. And it's like become like actually kind of a political movement. There's a grouping called Democrats for Education Reform, DEFER. You know, my wife Susan has to just try to deal, you know, counter that entity and whatnot. And they would promote charter schools. They would have the language of like disruption and innovation. But a lot of times what they were actually doing was undermining public education or certainly walking away from it. So actually, can you speak to that point? I don't know if you've had any inter- interaction with Tifa. I don't want to get you in trouble, but in terms of why you <laughs> said that you didn't want to do a charter. Yeah, I wanted to make that distinction because uh, to your point, the charter movement is a free market, neoliberal, pro- pro-corporate public education movement. It's a movement that siphons money away from traditional public schools and invest them, reinvest them in charter schools that do not have a, a an elected board. They have a chosen board of directors who go out and raise money uh, for them to reinvest in these charter schools. And through federal policies like the new market tax credit, uh, if you invest in charter schools over a five to seven year period and the charter remains open, you can make double the money that you invested on that charter school, usually within an opportunity zone, usually within a uh, a gentrifying community. Um, and there's all kind of other development that comes with charter schools once, char- once charter schools are open in communities. So I did not want to go the pro-corporate route, I believe, in traditional public schools. Another big piece to it is many charter schools, most charter schools do not have teachers unions. Um, And I come from organized labor. Mm -hmm. I believe in the the right to organize labor. And it's charter schools have been used as another tool to attack organized labor in this country. And teachers unions are one of the largest, strongest standing unions left in America Mm -hmm. as unions have been under attack for many, many decades. So that's why I went the, the, the district public school route. And I wanted to prove that we can do transformational, innovative education in a traditional public school with a teacher's union, implementing restorative justice, which is something else I want to lift up again, because, you know, as we move to the far right politically in our country, uh, we, we, we move away from a public health approach to public safety generally and restorative justice in our schools specifically. And yes, the charter movement is still very strong, still has a lot of money invested in it, um, as is the you know more punitive approach to addressing childhood uh, behavior in our schools. Yeah, yeah, these are all, I mean, I didn't even fully appreciate this until we started getting into this conversation. I mean, these are all the, a lot of the dominant battles that we're facing within this country politically right now, right, to talk about public safety, criminal justice reform, et cetera. This whole concept of restorative justice is a far more progressive concept. 
in that realm that but that doesn't get enough attention and that you know there's such a, a weakening of support and backing away from unions and it's so ironic or contradictory in the concepts of teachers in particular right because everybody has very fond memories of their teacher their elementary school most people do it right and so there's that, but then they don't think of that person as a union member, right? So then the whole the perception of them gets transformed. They're talking about oh, these unions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's let's pivot to your running for office, right? So you ran and won in 2020, and so the Justice Democrats recruited you um, to run to replace the uh, longtime in, uh, incumbent uh, Elliot Engel. He had served since 19. 19- 89. And also we had Alex Rojas, executive director of Justice Stems on the podcast back in February. So how did you get connected to Justice Stems? What what motivated you to run for Congress and what was the campaign like? I was tired of kids suffering is the short answer to the question why I decided to run uh, for Congress. You know, as you mentioned before, all of the issues, all of the challenges, all of the circumstances that our kids and families go through in day to day life are played out in the schools. Um, If a child is hungry, if a child deals deals with uh, toxic stress and complex trauma in their lives, if a child has uh, a family member with a criminal justice entanglement, if there's insecurity with housing, if there's food insecurity, if there's poverty, all of those issues manifest in our schools with uh, behavioral challenges, uh, referral to um, special education, uh, school to prison pipeline, uh, learning difficulties, lack of relationship between teachers and students, all that manifests in our schools. So I lived that and I saw that for 20 years. And what I didn't see, uh, well, first of all, what I began to learn more about was how schools are funded, the inequities in the funding, the impact of historical policy like redlining on historically marginalized communities, how the curriculum was shaped, how policy shaped what happened in schools. Like I I learned about that over the course of my career while living uh, with with what my kids were going through and also being black in America and raised by a single mom, three sisters during the crack cocaine era. I went through stuff too in public Mm -hmm. schools growing up. So all of that, you know, I just completed my doctorate uh, in education leadership, you know, so just constantly learning, trying to figure out how to fix this thing, (laughs) fix what was going on. Mm -hmm. I just didn't see any real sense of urgency from elected officials at the time um, towards what I thought needed to happen in, in, in schools and in society. And I felt that my voice could be a voice that could have a value add to the conversation. And, and so the year before I decided to run, 34 kids died within the K-12 school system in the Bronx and 17 died via suicide. Wow. Uh, and one of those suicides was right across the highway in Co-op City. 14-year-old girl was bullied, had nowhere to go to, went to the top of a building and jumped off um, right after school. Um, right up the street in New Rochelle, two girls got into an argument. One pulled out a knife, killed the other. Another Bronx high school, there was a murder in the classroom. Somewhere else in the Bronx, kid junior got jumped and killed in case of mistaken identity. And, um, and then Parkland shooting happened this year as well. And so it was just kids killing kids, kids killing themselves, no one really connecting the, the, their pain and suffering to trauma and policy. No one was really making that connection. And that's, and I was just numb. I, I felt powerless as a principal in the school. And I just felt like I could, I could offer something. So that's what made me run. And, and, and that's, you know, when I started running, 
everyone was saying, you got to talk to the Justice Dems. You got to talk to Justice Dems. I didn't know who they were. You know, mm-hmm. I knew who she was. I knew who the squad was, but I didn't know who they were. So I had a friend who I worked with in education justice spaces. I asked him to nominate me uh, <laughs> to the Justice mm-hmm. Dems. So he did. They reached out and it was a match made in heaven. Um, and thank God we were able to go on and, and win a big race. And had you ever been involved in a politics or political campaign before? And what? how did you kind of figure out what to do and how did have the justice them so no man i mean no i I had never been involved in in any capacity whatsoever i mean i've been involved in you know actions and activism around you know um culturally responsive education or you know overuse of standardized testing or curriculum stuff like i've been Mm -hmm. active in that space but in terms of being a part of a campaign no not not at all um, and I, I, you know, my mindset going in was, OK, there were 450, I think, thousand registered Democrats in the in, in the district. Only 20,000 voted for Elliot Engel in the previous election. And I could knock on 20,000 doors and get them to vote for me instead. Like that was my naive sort of approach to it. But mm-hmm. quite honestly, that's kind of how we ran the race. We just right. was like, OK, we're going to talk to more people than Elliot Engel three times over, which we did. But the other part that I, I uh, you know, didn't know about at all, and I was almost tricked into running based on this, was, you know, you got to raise money. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so a lot of the initial calls was like, listen, if you can't raise $330,000, at least you don't have a chance and whatever. So first thing I did was call everybody in my phone, even if I had spoken to them for years, told them I was running and asked them to toss me a couple bucks. We did that. So we got, so we raised 30,000 out the gate. And then we bought like flyers and literature and started knocking on doors like a year out to introduce myself to the district. And so we did all that. And and, and as you know, I, I probably was spending 40 hours a week calling strangers trying to raise money. Um, and so that that was the part that was probably most challenging. Uh, but we did it. And we had an amazing uh, volunteer base. And, and JD, um, especially at the time, was very powerful and grassroots organizing. And we had help from the Working Families Party and Make the Road and CVH and, you know, New York Communities for Change. And I mean, so many groups uh, that just came out and helped us out and we were able to pull it off. Yeah, well, it really resonates also with, you know, my own experience and trajectory. And I'll lift that up a bit for the audience as well. I think there's two kind of key lessons from this, right? Is that one is, um, well, kind of maybe three, actually, that, you know, a determined individual who has a vision and a plan and is willing to put in the work can actually make a difference in uh, uh, politics in terms of even getting elected. And linked to that is this point around the knocking on doors. And that so little of national democratic strategy understands the importance. Like when I was, I, I, I'm sure I've said this in the podcast, and I put it in, the, in the, the book, Brown is the New Way, right? So I was, when Willie Brown was a speaker of the assembly, they tried to dethrone him. Some of the Democrats tried to, you know, break off and go with the Republicans, et cetera. And then he defeated that. And his, his speech right after that was defeated and he was sworn back in, he says, the first law of politics is you have to learn to count. And that has always stayed with me. And so people don't understand. You're saying, right, that it's, you know, the number of votes that have occurred in the primary, how many doors you can knock on. When I ran, we recruited a team of 20 people. We knocked on 12,000 doors across the city of San Francisco, left little notes. Sorry, I missed you, Steve. 
Mm-hmm. And you can get elected that way. You can certainly make be far more viable than people actually realize. And so I say that for activists who are listening, but also hopefully the some of the leaders of the party to be able to, to understand. I, I mean, I mean, just just one one quick point here. Like, yes, an individual can get elected, yes. And you can transform political power in a district or county or state by knocking on more doors and getting more people out to vote. You can shift the balance of power. Mm. Like like next year, we have obviously a presidential election. We also have House elections, which is every two years, which is insane, by the way, just in and of itself. That's a whole other podcast run every two darn years. (laughs) But like on the Senate side, we got 33 seats up for grabs. And many of the seats that we claim are Republican. Actually, we don't know what they are because voter turnout is so low. Right. So if you if we figure out a strategic way to invest accordingly, get boots on the ground, knock on doors, talk to people and really show that we care about them and not corporations and big money, we could make red states blue. Mm-hmm. And if we did that, now we could do really big things like paid leave, codifying Roe v. Wade, voting rights, gun reform, on and on and on and on. George Floyd, justice and policing, everything. And so this is the time, man, for people to really lean in and, and, and don't let the apathy set in. Don't let the depression set in. Don't let the frustration. I get it. I Trust me, I get it. But harness that energy and, and, and allow it to make you more active, not less active. Because guess what? We're all mad at the Supreme Court right now. You know who chose three Supreme Court justices? Donald Trump. Yeah. And so, like, we don't got time to, like, allow this dude to come back in because they're trying to, if he gets back in, he may not lead a seat. Exactly. You know, forget the, forget the Constitution. He, he, he and the people support him, they want power. Exactly. That's it. And we got to take it back. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. I agree with everything that you've been saying. I think that's one of the things that's really exciting about having you as a representative and other members of the squad is seeing this group of progressive Congress members who are all people of color, um, just kind of speaking truth to power. And we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in your case specifically. Um, Just for folks who may not know some of the other members, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar, Cori Bush, and most recently, Greg Cesar and Summer Lee. These are all members of the squad. We had Summer Lee on the podcast actually in May of last year. Uh, You've all been supported by Justice Democrats, and several of you were initially elected after unseating longtime Democratic incumbents like we talked about earlier. What do you see as the role of the squad, this growing group of Congress people, both in the Democratic Party, I think, but also just nationally? We have to continue to be the voice of the people, and we have to continue to be who we are. We have to be our authentic selves, because that's what resonates mostly with the people and all people, not just people of color, but others gravitate toward us because we are authentically ourselves and we represent the voice of the people, not the voice of the wealthy elite and corporations. You know, we don't take any corporate PAC money at all for our campaigns. It's all small dollar contributions from around the country. And that's a big deal because, you know, after Citizens United, 
where it was decided that uh, corporations were people and money was free speech, money has taken over our politics. It was taking it over even prior to that. Now it's it's all kind of dark money and independent expenditures and super PACs controlling literally how members of Congress, state houses, counties, and local elections govern in their communities. And so when you're responsive to corporations and the wealthy elite more than you're responding to the people, you are supporting an oppressive oligarchical regime that is moving our democracy more towards fascism. That's how you get Donald Trump in the first place. So it's our job to push back on that based on how we run campaigns, based on how we organize, based on how we govern and how we legislate and how we advocate. Um, it, it, it's all of the above. And so what's beautiful and even magical about me being in Congress at this time is having colleagues, the colleagues that you mentioned, like on my side and riding and dying with me. And we ride or die together um, because it would be very lonely if I was here by myself with the rest of them. And I think they all, we all would say the same thing. So it's it's like a magical moment. You know, we we come from working class, struggle, regular day-to-day people. We are not wealthy. Uh, we are not business people. We are not career politicians. I mean, I know uh, Ayana, Ilhan, and Rashida, they were elected locally, but we all come from working class backgrounds. And that's another reason why it's, it's, it's authentic for us to just be connected to the people in the way that we are. So I think that's our role. And And, and then, you know, in addition to that, hopefully, uh, we can do enough grassroots organizing to grow the squad in the House, but also impact what happens at the, in the Senate and impacts what happens in local elections as well. And to just reinvigorate the body politic who who has grown uh, in terms of their apathy and despair across the country. Like we we aim to inspire people to lean in and get involved and get engaged because we need them. I personally need them to, to let me know I'm doing, I'm doing a good job so that I could keep going, but we need them to, to save this country from itself the same way that black people have always done. One of the criticisms people wage uh, or logic at the, the squad, I guess, is that it's like, or even just progressives period. It's like, you know, well, you can't just be you know, talking about whatever issues we have to like deliver and we have to, you know, make comp- compromises to get real things done. Right. It's kind of the strong narrative within national media in particular. So how do you think about these issues or in terms of where you take a stand, how long you take a stand, when do you take a compromise and what have, how have you kind of navigated that in your, your first uh, couple of years in office? Yeah. So first of all, I need to respond to the needs of the people in my district. That's first and foremost. And, you know, governing from a grassroots perspective, you know, I try to be in the community constantly talking to regular people, especially people who historically have not had power in these political and and economic spaces. So I talk to them, I listen to them, I try to learn uh, what the issues are. And then First and foremost, I govern from that perspective. And and what I've learned over the years is, you know, their struggles are similar to the struggles that people are having across the country. You know, the issue of of wealth inequality, for example, the issue of affordability, the issue of lack of access to health care, you know, affordable housing, you know, the issue of gun reform and the fact that we have we lead the developed world in gun deaths, um, the issue of mass incarceration. These are issues that the majority of Americans care about and the majority of the people in my district care about. 
And so I govern from that perspective. And one of the main reasons why we can't, quote unquote, get things done, you know, for people who want to criticize that, even though we have all had wins, whether it's through amendments or advocacy or or other means. But the people who offer that criticism, what you're what you're asking of us is to compromise with a corporate lobby and agenda that is designed to do harm to the majority of American people. And, you know, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I am an educator and I try to do my homework when it comes to history. When you look at our federal legislation historically, it has moved in the right direction in many ways, yes, but it has also caused uh, tremendous harm. And so when I govern today, as I govern today, I'm trying to redress or repair the harm that has been caused through policies like globalization, which contributed to mass incarceration, through policies like redlining, which contributed to the underfunding in schools and lack of green spaces in certain communities, and uh, the disproportionate upper respiratory illness that impacts Black communities. You know, I try to deal with the issue of the consistent lower education, economic, and healthcare outcomes when it comes to Black, Brown, and poor people in this country. Like that all is connected to historical policy. And so, you know, it's our job to to take the baton from, you know, the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement, you know, of the 50s and 60s, respond to the policies of the of the 30s and 40s and 50s and take it to the next level in a way that really builds a country that works for everyone. And so that's the mission. And, and so let's get it done. And, and we're all here at this moment to push to get that done, not to fall in line with with the status quo just so we can have a comfortable congressional seat for the next 30, 40 years. I mean, that's not that's not what I'm here to do. And I don't think that's what anyone anyone in the squad is here to do. Right. Can you actually talk a little bit briefly about the communicating back to the constituents in terms of what is actually happening, right? Like I think this interesting national moment um where there's kind of this, actually, that was a number of different conversations recently, a couple of conferences, and that there's this, on the one hand, this perception that like, well, Biden's kind of boring, he's not that exciting, not that much is happening. But then at the same time, if you look at, particularly compared to Trump, obviously, but a lot has happened in, since 2021 in terms of actual policies, dollars going back out to the communities, inflation's dropped dramatically, but there's still not necessarily that perception that great things are happening. So I just wonder if you could share kind of your thoughts around educating the public around the things that you are accomplishing. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's great. Like Biden is not exciting, right? He's, you know, older guy, just goes about his day, goes about his business and, you know, receives a lot of ridicule because of that. But when you look at his first two years in office, uh, you can argue he's had one of the most productive terms as a president in their first two years in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. we, We passed five transformational pieces of legislation. The American Rescue Plan, uh, which responded to the, the global pandemic in in the most equitable way that I've ever heard of, right? Where you had cities and school districts that serve disproportionately lower income people receiving more money 
than than municipalities that that serve wealthy individuals, almost at a rate of like ten to one. So a place like New York City, the New York City schools, for example, receive five billion dollars for their school system alone, and then the city in and of itself received several billion separate from that to help us to reopen schools, to help us to get vaccines to the people who most needed it, and to help us address some of the economic challenges that we had. So that's one policy in and of itself over a trillion dollars. That was tremendous. Then you have the Chips and Science Act, which is literally going to bring semiconductor manufacturing back to us, because as I mentioned earlier about globalization, you know, our race to the bottom in terms of low-wage production so that we could grow this you know, exponential wealth for the one-tenth of one percent, you know, has harmed us in terms of our control over the uh, semiconductor manufacturing industry. So Chips and Science Act is going to bring those semiconductor jobs back. Um, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, we fought for Build Back Better, didn't get everything we wanted in that. But with inflation reduction, we, we're capping insulin at, at, at $34 a month. We, could, we can negotiate drug prices going forward, historic investments in climate, uh, which was a big deal there, which is going to allow communities like ours to transition off of fossil fuels uh, with, with the federal government subsidizing that. We have the Safer Communities Act, doesn't go nearly far enough on gun control, but does provide huge investments in community and school mental health. And then you have the infrastructure bill, um, bipartisan infrastructure bill. And two of these bills, actually three of these bills are bipartisan, by the way, three of the five I'm mentioning. Infrastructure bill, investments in broadband, roads, bridges, and tunnels, construction jobs. And he's he's the president is also not just appointed the first Black woman to the Supreme Court, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, uh, but also record number of Black women at the lower courts, and, and just on and on and on and on, right? So mm. a lot of wins there. Right. He needs to do a better job of communicating, but we also have to get his back and communicate that as well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing about social media and mainstream media, you know, what if it bleeds and leads and there's a lot of sensationalizing of a variety of things. And so that that the story that travels the furthest is the, is the one that's negative and gets right. more clicks, not the truth. And then on the mm. other side, we got a, a party that is pretty much rooted in lies, rooted in white supremacy, rooted in sensationalism, and that becomes entertainment for people, and they share it, and that becomes the narrative when it's when it's BS. So, yeah. you know, that's why interviews like this are so important. Right. Well, in terms of this being rooted in white supremacy, let's talk a little bit about education, right? So there's been all these attacks on education in general. Um, you know, the Supreme Court recently, um, you know, basically gutted affirmative action, period. And then we've seen all these state legislatures in recent years, right, with all these banning books about Americans, people of color, LGBTQ plus people. And we've also seen attacks on these high school advanced placement programs, particularly targeting African-American history, which only just recently came into existence, right? <laughs> yeah. And so this is all kind of under this rubric of, you know, so-called critical race theory, which is, uh, you know, uh, euphemism for you fill in the blank there. Mm -hmm. But how are you looking at the, these attacks on education? What do you think that Democrats and progressives should be doing in response? We got to fight back. Um, we should be fighting back as hard and aggressively as possible, beginning at the grassroots level, going up to the federal level and then back again. We just got to push back as hard as possible because this is this is part of the white patriarchal, colonial, imperial, hegemonic supremacist agenda. 
That's what this is, right? And so there's a reason why, you know, enslaved Africans weren't allowed to 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 learn to read or learn anything or else they'll be lynched or raped and, and killed and sold, right? There's a reason for that. Uh, the reason why this pushback right now, this anti-Black pushback on curriculum, on on AP courses, on, on books, on affirmative action, on and on and on. Um, the reason why that's happening is because we are speaking truth to power, expressing our knowledge ourselves and calling out white supremacy wherever it exists. And so, you know, we are, again, taking the baton from uh, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the anti-war movement, and just speaking truth to power. And so that's why we have this this pushback. But we we need to be uh, clear, organized in coalition, and assertive and aggressive in, in pushing back and fighting for what we want in our schools, uh, what we want in our communities, what we want in our states, and what we want throughout this country. Because they are, I mean, this is this is DeSantis' entire platform, right? And Trump is right there with him. Uh, and, you know, I'm on the education committee in Congress. You know, this is what they're pushing uh, in Congress, you know, parents bill of rights, parenthetically, Christian evangelical white nationalist parents, that's their bill of rights, because they want to support people of color and trans community and any of that. So um, they're pushing that, they're pushing anti-trans legislation, on and on and on. So we have to push back. We have to come together in coalition, be organized, be clear, and be strategic in how we're going to push back because listen, next year is for all, all the marbles, in my opinion. If Trump gets back in there, we don't know what's going to happen, and that's what's just that's just scared the living daylights out of us. Yeah, and you know, as Steve mentioned earlier, the space of education is an example of just what's going on nationally around the country, and we're talking about white supremacist patriarchy and the attacks on education, parents' bill of rights. On the flip side, it doesn't sound like these parents who are so concerned about their kids' education care so much about keeping their kids safe in the classroom. Um, (laughs) In in March, you know, you got into a heated exchange with Kentucky Republican Congressman Thomas Massey after another school shooting in Nashville. Three children were killed and three adults, and you called Republicans in Congress cowards. And so just in talking about pushing back as a former educator, how are you thinking about what gun control and legislation can, can and should look like? I mean, this is why elections matter so much. I mean, I can't say that enough. And, you know, and I get the frustration and I get how overwhelmed it feels when you vote year after year and nothing happens or when you don't vote and nothing happens. And and you, you watch TV and you hear us politicians talk this nonsense, say all these nice things, and then you see nothing change in your community. But elections matter. And so if we don't elect the right people in and vote the wrong people out, I don't know when we're going to pass comprehensive common sense gun laws. And right now, based on polling, Republicans support common sense gun laws almost as much as not as much as Democrats, but above 50 percent. So what that means for me, that's a ban on assault rifles. Civilians should not have them. We should ban them. Um, that's universal background checks. That's universal red flag laws. That's universal safe storage laws. And that's figuring out a way to hold manufacturers and dealers more accountable, especially dealers, because research shows that in terms of the issue of gun trafficking, uh, we know where most of the guns are coming from. We could we could target dealers based on that uh, specifically, but we're not doing enough to hold them accountable. 
Um, and this is where, you know, DOJ and federal and state and local law enforcement have to work together to stop the gun trafficking issue so that we can stop guns getting into the most vulnerable communities and killing most vulnerable people. Um, but elections matter, you know, and so I just want people to take that away uh, from this conversation. If, if we sit home, we're, we're allowing the status quo to continue, which is a crisis of mental health amongst our kids. Uh, mass incarceration, senseless gun deaths and senseless violence, unaffordable housing, lack of health care, lack of investments in jobs, entrepreneurship, wealth and uh, wealth inequality. If we sit home, we're allowing those things to persist and we didn't have a say in it. We're giving our power away to others. And there are some who believe if they build their own wealth and focus on their own family, have their own jobs, that that's all that matters. Uh, and that may be true for some groups. It ain't true for black people. And for Black people, we came in a tribe, we got to stay together as a tribe, and we got to win and change this country and this world as a tribe. And so we need to be in concert with each other. And that requires building economic power, yes, but also building political power. And that's something that civil rights groups have done and many other groups have done. But now uh, we need to expand that and grow that, especially with the, I mean, we have over a trillion dollars in spending power. If we're more strategic with how we spend our money, we could build the political power to get all the things that we want and need. Thank you. And so we, we will be closing soon and just kind of staying on this note. I know it's been a, we've been talking about you know, very serious issues in the classroom. What's giving you hope as you continue, especially for students and as an educator? Uh, you all, you all are giving me hope. You're you're having this conversation and facilitating this conversation. I really appreciate that because we got to continue to have these conversations and get information to the people so that they can act upon that information. I'm sitting at the dining room table with my daughter right here to my right, and she gives me hope. You know, she's nine years old, and I want to do everything I can to build a better world for for her and others. And just history, you know, historically not just in this country, but throughout human history, we we have evolved and gotten better in many ways. I think the next leap is for us to really work together across our collective humanity to create a better world and stop, you know, fighting across race or class or who has the bigger weapons and guns and tanks and figure out a way to cooperate to solve problems like uh, like climate change and, and hunger and cancer and poverty and racism and sexism and all the ugly aspects of, of society. I, I think the next evolution of, of humanity is towards cooperation and away from destructive competition, uh, which is where we are now. So, you know, that gives me hope. Hope gives me hope, uh, if that makes sense, uh, because across uh, history and generations, we, we've shown the ability to get better. So let's get way better, way faster, and let's use technology to do that uh, since that thing is moving light years uh, you know, ahead of where we thought it would be, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of technology and uh, social media, this is my last question. There's been much ado about something, a video of you bench pressing 405 pounds <laughs> <laughs> and three reps at that. One article stated, Bowman is pretty jacked, but is he our strongest politician? So I'm going to ask you, maybe your daughter, <laughs> are you our strongest politician? I don't know. There's a lot of politicians out there, so I don't really know. In terms of Congress, I think my, my biggest competition uh, might be Colin Allred. 
Mm. Uh, Colin Allred, I think, is a former NFL linebacker. And I know he used to be able to bench that much. I don't know if he still does. So wow. uh might be might be Colin. Uh, but to that point, you know, I um I, I'm very lucky and proud that I'm able to get back into the gym consistently because I've been mad lazy for many, many years. And, you know, I'm 47 now. When you get older, you got to make sure you take care of yourself, you know? So everybody out there, if you, you know, go to the doctor, get a checkup, ask the doctor about diet, you know, live a healthy lifestyle because, you know, we got to, I'm proud. I got a prostate exam. I got a, I got a colon exam. I, I, I get my numbers. I know where my numbers are. I, I do all those things because, you know, I'm trying I'm trying to live as long as possible. So that's why I'm in the gym like that. But thank you for thank you for the shout out. Yeah. Now let me let me just add in and, and, and amen on that. I mean, I went to my physical two weeks ago. I started seeing nutritionists three years ago and lost. Well, at one point, it's 30 pounds. I'll reweigh after this last trip. Lowered my A16 and the numbers, done the, uh, you know, the colon test. So. I just want to give a shout out to that. So I have done those things somewhat similarly to what the congressman has done. I have not bench pressed 400 pounds. I'm actually able to bench press 100 pounds. I'm still trying to process all of that. <laughs> so uh, we're kind of at the end of the time, congressman. Um, but it's one, and I say, and I want to say this, say this as a, as a as a compliment. You don't sound like most members of Congress. And it's really very refreshing and very inspiring. Um, and I think our, our listeners are really going to uh, enjoy this podcast and following your your leadership and what you do. So we're delighted that you're there on the Hill and raising these issues and speaking up in this way. I'm really grateful that you joined us here on the podcast today. Oh, man, thank you. That was, that was very kind of you. I will take that as a compliment, even though I, I kind of was like, ah, I don't know, you know. <laughs> they try to get me to sound different, but I don't know. You know, it's, we got we got to be ourselves, exactly. right? Exactly. You got to so, be yourself. Thank you so right. much, man. Appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks so much, Hoffman. Take care. All right. That is, uh, was that Oldsmobile commercial? Not your grandfather's Oldsmobiles, not your grandfather's congressperson. That's somebody from the community, strong, unapologetic views, not afraid to state them. And so I really hope. You enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Um, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow the congressman on Twitter at Rep Bowman and on Instagram at Jamal Bowman NY, J-A-M-A-A-L-B-O-W-M-A-N-N-Y. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Bolo Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.